Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone. It's a little bit gray outside today, and so I woke up and I thought, this is a good day for Ecclesiastes, okay? So if you have a Bible, let's go there together, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we're in a sermon series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you were hoping to ha- cheer up this morning, um, we'll, uh, hopefully you can find someone happy after service, and you all can have a good conversation together. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Now, I think we'll actually get to a little bit more of a positive section here um, than some of the ones we have seen. Now, I am always looking to read things on productivity. I'm always looking for certain life hacks that are going to allow me to do things more efficiently and do things better. I don't know if it's the ADHD or the lack of sleep or all the different things that may be influential, um, but I have a tendency to not get things done as much as I'd like to get them done. Uh, for to-do lists to stay longer than I'd like them to stay. And uh, I fall prey often into a common mistake. I don't think it's uncommon for people when it comes to productivity, which is I will put off the most important task of my day until the day is over. And so a week on Monday, I'll say, this is the most important thing I need to do this week. And then by Friday, I still haven't gotten to it. But I have accomplished so much else. All these little easy tasks that I've done. And uh, I have to remind myself, I, I did a program called Student Leadership uh, when I was a high school teacher. And we had a group of kids we meet with every so often. And then we'd go on trips once a year and uh, go listen to business leaders and Christian uh, authors and things of that nature. And one of the things they taught the kids that I secretly tried to learn and I'm still trying to learn was a phrase. The phrase was, eat the big frog first. I don't know if you've heard this phrase or not. It comes from some kind of a folktale story where um, the question is asked, if you're given the task to eat three frogs, something of this, this nature, and there's a small one and a medium one and a big one, which frog do you eat first? And the answer is the big one, the hardest one. You get that frog down your throat first, and then the rest will come, and it'll seem a little bit easier and a little more efficient. Um, whatever the reason is, uh, I think we all have a tendency sometimes to um, lose focus on the highest priority that we have. Um, we all have tasks. We all have vocations. We have things that we have been gifted to work on. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can eat those small frogs. And if you eat those small frogs for long enough, you wake up one day and go, I never really got around to the most important thing that I had to do. Now, Ecclesiastes this morning, Colette, author of Ecclesiastes, he is going to get us to a place where we might be asking this question. What is the work we've been given to do? What's the most important work that we've been given to do? And how might uh, we find meaning and satisfaction in pursuing that? So let's read together. We'll pick it up in chapter 3. Last week we read 3, 1 through 15. And so we'll pick it up in verse 16 and we'll read to chapter 4, verse 3. I think the next natural break here. So it goes like this. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. 
I said again in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity, all is havel. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot or portion. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who were alive. And we rejoice with praise this morning. I'm joking. This is not the, he just said it'd be better to not be living than to be alive. I'm checking if y'all are reading along with me, and uh, we'll, we'll see. One more verse. But better, he says, than both is he who's not even yet been, who's not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, we get some of Colette's um, most favorite themes here in this passage, um, primarily death and vanity. And he says, we're going to die. You're going to die. The animals are going to die. We all came from dust. We're all going back to dust. And this all generally makes everything kind of worthless, meaningless. What he means by that is there's no surplus. There's nothing left over after the day. He, though, focuses on something new here in the book of Ecclesiastes. We get his um, thought process um, kind of fixated on something that we haven't yet seen him deal with. Primarily, oppression, injustice. Remember, Colette is, uh, has fashioned himself into an experimenter of sorts, a scientist, a researcher. And he is experimenting with his life and with his intellect what might bring surplus or meaning into the world different things he can do, different things he can accomplish, different things he can be. And he kind of looks back at the world, and he's taking notes. He's observing what happens and trying to figure out how that fits into something that means anything. And as he's looking out into the world, there's one thing he sees everywhere, and it has him vexed. It's injustice, oppression. He looks out, and he sees that human beings have this remarkable capacity to hate one another, to hurt one another. That humanity from the beginning has this weird ability to divide up into sides. And one side gets power and money and they kind of leverage that for their own benefit. And then this other side just has tears left over, he says. You've got tears or power, oppressor or oppressed. He kind of divides all of humanity into one of these two kinds of people. And now, Colette looks out on this, like many of us, I think, do. Um, for most Christians and for many non-Christians, it's the problem of evil in the world that is one of the biggest barriers to faith in God. Um, it is looking out, seeing that news story. It's seeing what's happening on your street. It is that conversation, that scene in the hospital room that you're in. It's those moments where we come face-to-face with the injustice and the evil of the world, when we're hurt or victimized, that we wonder about all these claims that we have as Christians, these beliefs that we hold. 
Colette sees this and it shakes him just as much as it shakes me and might shake you. He longs here in this passage for these wrongs to be righted, for victims to be saved. He, he longs for someone to comfort them and, and dry their tears. And he looks out and his conclusion is there's no one. No one can comfort them. No one can do anything about this. Injustice has been and injustice will be. This is the way of the world. And he says it's meaningless. How do we ever get something that lasts out of this process? Now for Coalette, it's not just the fact that injustice happens in the world that vexes him. In particular, what, what gets under his skin is that injustice happens in the very places that have been created for justice to happen. So he says it's the courtrooms, it's the judges, it's the lawyers, it's the governments. Yeah, something might be going wrong and, and you say, okay, I, I need to fix this, let me grab a lawyer. And then you find that that lawyer is corrupt. And you say, let me find a judge that can change this. And you find that judge has been paid off. And you look around and you say, is there nowhere that I can go? Is there no one here to comfort, to protect, to save? Now he asks himself a few questions here. He, he kind of speaks to himself. You have these two phrases in 17 and 18, I said in my heart. Colette's talking to himself here. He's trying to reason with himself. Perhaps he's thinking of things he's read, sermons that he's heard, scriptures that have been taught to him. He says in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. We saw at the beginning of chapter 3, Ecclesiastes go through all the different times there are for all the different seasons of life. He says, well, that's true. There's a time for everything. And surely there has to be a time for justice. There has to be a time for God to judge the evil and the wickedness in the world. There has to be a time for God to come and say, this is wrong and will not be allowed in my creation. He continues talking to himself. He says, I said in my heart with regret to the children of man that God's testing us, that we may see that we are but beasts. The word test here is not like a pass or fail test. It's like a challenge. It's like a revelation of character. He says, we've been put in this arena uh, we call life and what it does over time is it allows us to see what we're made of, the kind of people that we are. And he says, if we're being honest, the conclusion is we're not much better than the beasts of the earth. We're not much better than the most violent and vicious and irrational animals. Now, we love to consider ourselves very rational. And we can think and problem solve in ways many animals can't. And we are most assuredly one of the most social creatures that exists on this earth. And yet, we're the most violent. There's not another animal on God's creation that harms each other the way that we harm one another. There's not another animal on God's creation that can devastate all other animals on God's creation. Um, we're going through a phase right now that some uh, historians or scientists call the uh, the extinction from humanity. And what's happening is we are extinguishing so many species in such a quick time period. The world has never seen something like this. And what happened? Why is this happening? Because we're here. We're coming through and we are, um, we are destroying God's creation. We're destroying the animals he's put on creation. We can put a big bow on this, right? Here's what's happening. Here's what Ecclesiastes is saying in one picture. We see a killer whale, and we make it Shamu. This is what 
humans do? And at the end of the day, are we that much better? He says, certainly not in terms of where we come from. We're all coming from the ground, from the dust. Certainly not in terms of where we're going. We're all going to the ground and to dust. Now, even though Colette wonders and, and asks himself, perhaps there's some judgment that's coming that will right these wrongs, death here equalizes any benefit you might get out of that. What good is justice if you're not around to experience it? What good is justice if it happens after you have gone to the ground? It's a small consolation prize that perhaps one day in the future, God will step in and make things right. He asks himself here, he he talks about the afterlife. In verse 21, he, he says, who knows? He's agnostic about it. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He's an empiricist. He looks out and tries to observe what he can see and tell and make sense of with his senses, what he can observe and repeat, things of that nature. And so he says, perhaps something is after what we're experiencing. Perhaps the beasts go down and we go up, or perhaps our spirits live on in some sort of way. But Colette is standing at a moment in time where the Jewish people don't really have a well-formed theory of the afterlife. Um, this is why you don't see a lot in the Old Testament about the afterlife. Now, Coalette can imagine one, it seems. He can postulate about certain things that might happen. But here we see a beginning point to actually how the Jewish people and early Christians developed into their uh, belief in the afterlife. It seems that what happened, if you kind of follow the trajectory of their thought, is that they had this belief that the world was wrong, was contained full of evil, that God did not like this and would one day step in and fix it. And then they had this question, well, what point is that for all the people who died in the process, for all the people who don't get to experience what comes after the judgment? And they come up with the belief in what's called the resurrection. What will happen, how this judgment works, is that God's people will be resurrected to experience life after this judgment, to experience this new age, this age to come. But Colette is not there yet. He's, he's wondering out loud. He says, I don't know. I have no proof either way. And so he comes to a carpe diem passage. I saw, he says, there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. That's his lot or portion. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? He says, the one thing we can do is rejoice in our work right now. The one thing we don't know is what that will mean after we're gone, what will come after us. Now, this morning, I do want to, from a Christian lens, from the viewpoint of Christ, I want to try to see if we can pin down some specifics. If there is a work that we've been given that we should rejoice in and commit ourselves to, and if there is a way in which we can understand what might come after us because of and along with that work. Now, Colette, as he decries the injustice in the world, he, he stands in a long line of uh, tradition, uh, the Old Testament prophets who looked out and decried all the injustice that they saw. Um, it's, many of them are the, the sins we still see today. Um, you read the Old Testament prophets and you'll see them talking about the poor getting poorer and the rich getting richer. You read the Old Testament and you'll see them talking about the asylum seeker and the refugee being treated as less than human. Now, I'm not trying to be political here, okay? That's just in the Bible. That's, those are the words there. God was very concerned that the Israelites, as a people who were once foreigners with no place to live, 
would show nothing but hospitality to the aliens who might end up in their land. And you'll see the prophets crying out about children being abused or lacking resources. You'll see the prophets crying out about violence. In our day, we look out and we can see genocide and terrorism and homelessness. And, And if we really were to sit down and think about all that goes wrong in our world, it can quickly become paralyzing. It can quickly become kind of overwhelming as we try to analyze it. In the scriptures, though, uh, uh, with the oppressed and the oppressors, God does not stand on the fence. He takes a side. God clearly marks out for himself a position when it comes to those who are oppressing and those who are the victims of that oppression. And from the very beginning, he stands on the side of the poor and the oppressed. Some scholars would say it like this. God seems to have a preferential bias for the poor and the oppressed. What this means is that he seems to, um, his first move is to go and protect them, to go and advocate for them. You and I probably would do this as well. Uh, As a teacher, if I'm in a classroom and I have a student who's doing great and has a great home life, and then a student who's not doing great in the class and has a horrible home life, it's not that I care about one of them more than the other, but I'm going to go help that kid. He's the one who needs lifting up. This person's doing okay. And God stands on the side of those who are oppressed. Now, some people... Christians, this is a common um, thing that happens today, mistake uh, uh, thinking about oppression and God's relationship to it in this way. They, they imagine that God is not very concerned with what we might call systemic injustice. And they say God's more concerned about personal justice, personal morality. So God's less concerned about you know, the after effects of slavery or about how the world economics work and keep certain countries in perpetual debt and underdevelopment, and more concerned that you hold the door open for the woman coming in after you at Luby's, that you are kind to the people that you encounter. And these are certainly both true. In the scriptures, God does care about our personal righteousness, but that takes place inside of a larger concern he has for the way the world as a whole functions. God is very much concerned with how the systems of sin and oppression operate and how those might be broken down, redeemed, fixed. And how he does this is is unique. God's response from the very beginning to the evil in the world is, is not what we would expect. It's not necessarily to take over the empire of the day and say, we'll just run the laws our way. And it's definitely not just to go kill all the bad people. We'll just eradicate those people doing those things. From the very beginning, God's posture, his solution to the evil in the world has been this, to create a people, to form a family, to make out of nothing a community, a community that will bear witness to his love, a community that will bear witness to his will, a community that is permeable, that has an open gate where people can be brought into this community and it can grow and grow and grow. In the Old Testament, this is the Israelites. In Genesis, the first 11 chapters, the world is going crazy. There's violence and wickedness just growing and growing and growing until that's basically all that there is. And then God responds. There's a huge turning point in Genesis. And the turning point is when he goes to a man named Abraham. He says, I want you. And I'll give you a family and I'll make a nation out of your family. And you will be the people who go forth and show the world what my will is, who model it, and who invite others to participate in it. 
Now, the Israelites are unfaithful in this task, as we often are as well. Um, And the New Testament comes, the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus comes. And what we find is that his plan has largely not changed. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and, and Jesus um, takes part in the great judgment of God that Colette is looking forward to. We often think of judgment and God's judgment as a future thing. And there's an aspect where this is true, but we might call that more properly the final judgment. It's final because a judgment has already taken place. The scriptures say that on the cross, God delivers his verdict about humanity and creation. The cross is a big no to sin and evil and injustice and oppression. And the cross is God's yes to life and resurrection and transformation through the Spirit. Jesus, performing this work on the cross, then decides to continue his mission by, wait for it, forming a people. He's got 12 disciples. He says, the mission that I've been on, I'm going to co-mission it. I'm going to bring you into this mission. In Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, and now I'm giving you your command, your task, your vocation, and, and remember what it is. It's go make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he gives them a promise with this. Behold, I'll be with you as you do this to the end of the ages. I would suggest that the task of disciple-making is our big frog as the church. It's the number one thing we've been given to do. It's the number one task that we have. We do this because of the work of Jesus and because of the call on his life. Coalette is looking for someone who will stand up to the oppressors and comfort the victims, and he finds that person or would find that person in the life of Jesus. Jesus sits in, uh, on a hill overlooking Jerusalem and he cries for the suffering that is to come. Jesus goes to the power breakers of the day, power brokers, and he stands up to them. He calls it like he sees it. He is not scared of the ramifications. He ends up giving his life because of this. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, um, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we might wonder as we were reading, what's he planning on doing in Jerusalem? Uh, if he was flying, did he get a, a ticket for the return trip? Or is this like a suicide mission? Um, here's though what we do know. Again, if we aren't considering that we know the story as it happened, is that once he gets to Jerusalem, the first thing he does, one of the first things he does, is he goes right into the temple. And he goes right to the people causing oppression. And he flips open their tables, flips over, over their tables. You do not have to be a politician or a scientist or a genius to understand that whatever Jesus' intentions were going into Jerusalem, he now is not getting out. This is Jesus going to the courthouse and saying, this is me. I'm right here to be executed. This is Jesus walking straight into the prison and revealing the X on his chest. Jesus is the one Coalette has been waiting for. And because of Jesus and his work, the church is formed and sent out to join him on this mission, to make disciples. Going back to the text, he says, there's nothing better to do than rejoice in the work that we've been given. This is our portion. This is our lot. And we read this text naturally, and we think of our own vocations. Some of us work in business. Some of us are teachers. 
Some of us are retired. And we think, okay, the, the work that we've been given is something that we should rejoice in and, and try to find meaning in. And, and that is not untrue. But from the perspective of the church, with the mission we've been given from Jesus, we might look at this text and say the, the real work, the capital W work that we've been given is to make disciples. And that all of our individual vocations, all the smaller ones, the things that we actually do day to day, those find their meaning inside of that larger calling. We have a vocation to teach. We have a vocation to do business. And that vocation fits and finds its place inside of the bigger vocation, which is to do the work of the church, which is to go forth and make disciples. Colette asked, what do we know will come after us? What kind of legacy can we live? He's already talked about this, this issue of legacy. No matter what we do in this life, there's always the prospect, all the wealth that we saved up goes to our stupid kid. And it means nothing. But through the lens of Christ and his resurrection, we are allowed to see into the future. We're allowed to see what will come after us because death, the great equalizer for Coalette, is defeated on the cross. And just as Jesus goes into death and comes out on the other side, so goes the church. This is why the church community proper is not just those who are living. It's all the saints. From the very beginning, the 12 apostles, because death is not the final word for their existence. Death is not the final word for their impacts, for the legacy that they leave. And I think it's as we make disciples, as the church is a witness to the world, as we grow in numbers and spirit, that we are able to say this is what will come behind us. What will come when we're gone is the church will continue to develop. The people who we have poured into and impacted will then pour into and impact others. And systematically, over time, through the power of the Spirit, God's will comes to be accomplished. So the question is, are we doing that? Are we making disciples? Is this the work above our individual work? Is this the legacy that we are trying to leave? Like me in my office trying to get tasks done, I think so go Christians. With all the many things we're tasked to do in our lives, that we can very easily wake up one day instead of gone to work and I've taken care of my family and I've done these things and, and those things, and yet I've never gotten to the big frog. I'm not sure I've ever actually invested into making disciples who would then go on and make more disciples. We can look back on our own spiritual lives, our own spiritual journeys, and I'm, I'm guessing that almost all of us can identify people who poured into us and who have a legacy that exists in our faith. Most of us, I think, are brought into the faith through people, through relationships. Some of us maybe watched a sermon on TV and were like, got it, I'm in. Even then, I'm guessing you, as you went along, were surrounded by people who helped you and matured you and answered questions and prayed for you, who modeled what would happen as you go forward in the faith. Who is it that made this legacy in your life? Who's the person in your life who said, I'm going to eat the big frog first. I'm going to commit myself and all the different things that I'm tasked with through all of those things. I'm going to commit myself to developing the faith of others 
to bring them into the fold of God's people. I'm a big believer in the um, truth that, that we should, we'd all be better off, I think, if we expressed our gratitude to those people. There's a handful of men in my life that did this for me, and at least once a year I try to reach out to them for the sole purpose of saying thank you. What you did mattered. What you did is still impactful in my life and life of the people around me because of the investment you made in me. And so we're told to rejoice in our work, knowing this is the legacy that we'll leave behind. And the question again comes down to, are we doing this? Are we making disciples? Have we gotten distracted? Have we gone over over after other things instead of the thing? We could, we could ask a couple questions that may challenge us this morning. Um, the first one would be this. Do you desire to make disciples? In your, in, in your heart, deep down, do you actually want to? Do you want to share your faith? Do you want to see other people come and develop in their faith because of your investment and your relationship? It seems clear from Scripture that's how God has wired spiritually his people, found people find people. As we're converted, we're commissioned into the same mission that Jesus has. And yet, for many of us, the answer is sometimes no, for a variety of reasons. Honestly, right now, that's not a big desire of mine. That's not a big driver of mine. And that's, that's an okay place to be if for nothing else, then it's a place of honesty. And it's always better to be honest than to be dishonest. We might, though, consider a lack of a desire to make disciples like a, a, a blinking light on our dashboard of the car, a diagnostic tool, saying maybe something's amiss. Maybe we've gotten distracted by other things. Maybe we're at a point in our life where things are so difficult for our own faith that it's hard to even think outside of our faith or our lives. Maybe we don't feel confident in investing in other people. Maybe we don't feel equipped. Maybe we're worried about some of the cost it might have, the time that it will take, the reputation we may or may not get at our places of work or places of recreation in our homes. Maybe we just have lost the joy of our salvation. The early disciples, I imagine, found it easy to go out and make more disciples because they had just talked to a dead person. So the resurrected Jesus appeared before them. And I can almost guarantee that if we had someone come from the grave and come speak this morning, you would tell someone about it. You'll never guess what happened at my church. (laughs) But life gets to us, right? All these different things happen as we become Christians. You know, this weird thing happens to Christians where usually the most effective period of disciple making for a Christian is the first year to three years after their conversion. And you see a downward return after that. And I think that's largely attributed to the excitement and joy factor. New Christians are so amazed with what they've found and what they're experiencing that they've become evangelists naturally. You couldn't stop them. But then it gets comfortable You get inoculated to it. It's normal. And you miss out, lose out, lose desire, 
to take advantage of these opportunities. If so, if, if you do desire to make disciples, how are you planning to do it? How are you doing it? I think it takes an intentional approach. We could ask ourselves questions. We could go through this. Who have you committed to praying for? This is where it starts, I think, in making disciples. Who in your places of influence, where you work, where you live, where you play? Who is it that you are praying for? Who is it that God has put on your heart? This is not all that taxing of a, of a task. Simply pray for that person, to pray that God would open up a door for you to invest in that person. Who have you committed to inviting to church? The, the great thing about disciple-making is it's not an individual thing. Um, the church as a whole makes disciples. And of course, that involves actions of the individuals, but you don't have to have all the answers because there are some people in the church who are better with answers. And you don't have to model things perfectly because there are other people in the church who are more developed in certain aspects of their Christian walk. You don't have to be the sole person to support someone else because there's a family around you that will support them as they support you. I was, I was thinking about it this week, and I was wondering what would happen if we all committed to inviting a regular number of people to church each month? And I just kind of pulled out the number three. Three people a month. This is something we could do. It's, it's actually not really that hard to invite someone to church. The stakes are pretty low. Usually we, we do and we get discouraged because they don't come. Or we get to a point in our life where almost everyone we know already goes to church somewhere, if not our church. And that for us is just a challenge to expand our relationships. To go out into more fruitful fields. If we were to each invite three people a month to church, what would happen would be um, 36 people a year. What would happen would be people we invite would come. The statistics just say so. If you invite enough people, they, they, one will come with you. One will show up. And this makes all the difference sometimes. This is that door that's opened up for that person to start to walk down their path of faith. This creates a bridge where you now are maybe more comfortable and open talking to them about spiritual things, coming alongside them. Who are we praying for? Who are we inviting? How are we committing to discipling others? How can we increase the knowledge of God and Scripture and other people? How can we increase the ability to practice spiritual disciplines, to pray, to practice love and forgiveness? to exercise generosity and sacrifice, to serve others, work for the benefit of other people. I think any part of a plan to decide people has to include who are we going to ask to help us and support us along the way? Who can we count on to support us as we endeavor to make disciples? Now, if you have kids, I think all these questions apply equally to you, right? If you have kids, you should be asking yourself, are you praying for your kids? Are you discipling them? Are you committed? How are you committed to modeling and inviting them to pray with you, to modeling and inviting them to worship corporately with you, to modeling and inviting them to serve, to practice generosity, to grow in their knowledge of God and the Scriptures? This is, I think, the 
ultimate legacy that we leave behind. This is the meaning that we've been given in terms of task and work as Christians. In the Great Commission, before the command, make disciples, and after it's over, we have a a statement and a promise. We're told that Jesus, the one who's commissioning us, has all authority in heaven and earth. And then we're told that as we do this, his presence will be with us. He'll be with us always. And, and sometimes I imagine that one of the reasons we don't necessarily feel like we have Christ's authority in our life, and sometimes we don't feel like we have Christ's presence in our life, is perhaps because we're not doing these things. It's like people who pray in need, give me my daily bread. Someone who already has bread for the day is less likely to pray for that daily bread. Someone who's living comfortably in the status quo, right, doesn't necessarily need the power of Jesus. Doesn't need his presence to support them and guide them as powerfully as someone who is out there, who is pursuing this mission, who is taking risks, who is committed, who has gone all in. Now, one of my favorite moments here at the church in the past 10 years or so was uh, an Easter Sunday. And that Easter Sunday, I saw a, a young person who I had spent years investing in. Um, he was an atheist when I met him. And for most of the time, I was investing in him. I saw him come to the table for the first time as a believer. And my, my heart still just now fills with joy thinking about that. When I think about disciple-making, this is the tangible experience that I have. I ask myself, who am I investing in today that I might have joined me at the table in the future? I imagine, what are the things that I could do? How could I be more intentional to feel that joy over and over and over again? To to be like the, those who invested in me, someone who can look on others and say, there's an impact that I've left. There's a a legacy of faith that I have left. So this morning, as we come to the table, may we recommit ourselves to the work of God. May we not lose sight of the first task that we have because of all the secondary tasks. And as we come to the table this morning, maybe we can ignite our imaginations and we can think and dream and imagine who in our lives might one day be joining us at this table. And as we leave the table, we can work towards that end, that mission.